minus 10, 9. You're listening to the Launchpad Podcast with j Brought to you by Galant Media. Here's your host, Ignition j So welcome once again to the Launchpad Podcast. My name is J-Man. Very happy to have this gentleman on the show. Uh, he has scored himself a few uh, platinum and gold records as a musician, as well as a producer, uh, multiple Juno nods, as well as Grammy nods, frontman of Grady. I love that band, Sit Down Servant, which would be the last time I believe I had a chat with you. And of course, oh. Big Sugar. It is Gordy Johnson. Welcome to the program. Howdy. Yeah, it's been a minute. So that would have been Dog FM where you were passing by oh. with Sit Down Servant. Yeah, I recall that. I thought we were playing with George Thorogood, I think. Yeah, there's been a yeah, I believe that's a yeah. show. Yeah. No, yeah, sure. Man. Not a bad, not a bad gig. <laughs> Sit down servant, strangely. I mean, that's one of the sort of more esoteric, lesser known things that I've done. Uh however, we toured the world with it. We went all over the world. We did a tour across Canada with George Thorogood, and that folded into a tour with a show with Joe Satriani that turned into a tour with Satriani across Canada and US and then Europe and then Australia. So we, a year and a half later, I was still on tour with Sit Down Servant, a band no one's ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of it. Now, I can't recall what was the creative flair that got you going down that path. Now, I know that you love to experiment with music, so that's no surprise. Mm-hmm. But was there something in particular that spawned that project? Yeah, actually, because Sit Down Servant, I was playing steel guitar as opposed to six-string guitar. Well, I did a little bit of six-string in that, but mainly I started to play steel when I had carpal tunnel syndrome. And uh, my hand seized up, my left hand, my fretting hand. I was losing feeling in it. and it would My hand would just get all tingly and just black out on me during the show. I'd have to shake it off. That That was very stressful. I had surgery on that wrist and I wasn't, I couldn't play for about six months. Well, it healed. I needed to heal up real good because you didn't want to cause any damage. So not playing a guitar for six months was a bit, bit of a challenge. And rather than get sort of mentally downtrodden by that, I decided to put my time into steel guitar sort of as a, uh, a convalescent sort of a way to get my hand and mind back in musical shape without the stress on my wrist. Because when you play steel guitar, your hand goes flat and you just manipulate the bar around side to side, not up and down. So that got my hands in shape slowly, gently, got my mind back into thinking music. So I dove right into steel guitar. And now I still, I play steel guitar all the time. It, it is a big challenge. It's not really a, just because you can play guitar doesn't mean you can play steel. I mean, the tunings are different. There's more strings more different tunings you can work in. I've got a triple neck fender with, you know, 24 strings on it. Right. So you can, you can imagine <laughs> the mental gymnastics involved in, uh, in playing that instrument. So yeah, I used it to challenge myself and ended up touring the world while I was healing up. <laughs> now, well before that time, I caught you in college <laughs> And I was going to Loyalist College at the time in Belleville, Bell Vegas. Oh, you in college, not me in college. No, no. yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you went to Hard Knock College. Oh, that's yeah, right. and so 
this would have been in 1998, 99. Mm -hmm. And I heard that you guys were loud. And I don't know if you remember the Shark Tank pub, <laughs> but that is in the basement of a campus, large space, and it's all cement. Uh, like there is no yeah, padding yeah. anywhere. And no, I was thinking about sound quality down there, I don't <laughs> think. <laughs> it, it, was, it was really loud, but I'll, I'll never forget that because it made a huge impact on me. Uh, at the time, we were playing your music at the college station. You were getting massive airplay all around Canada at the time. Uh, and right next to that memory would be me winning a bowl of condoms for guessing how many were in the bowl. Isn't that a treat? What a great day for a college God. student to win a bowl of condoms and check out Big Sugar in the same evening. Higher learning, baby. <laughs> <laughs> So you've come a, a long way, obviously, from then. There's been many different evolutions, and I want to talk about that. But I also want to touch on you when you were younger. And I've done a lot of interviews with musicians, and usually I'm kind of on top of what would be known as you know prodigy talents when they were young. And it was only after doing some research and listening to another podcast that you were on I heard this great story in regards to you just playing when you were young. You were paid very young as an artist, uh, mm -hmm. and you had to play a lot of different music, and that really opened you up culturally to a lot of different styles. Yeah, that's really true. Uh, it's funny because in those days, you know, it was the late 70s. I was a kid. I wasn't even in high school yet. And that wasn't really looked at as, like, in my family and in my – I mean, in my – in my town in those days, society didn't look at, you know, just because you could play a bass guitar didn't make you a prodigy. You weren't really <laughs> rewarded for that. Right. It's not like I had, you know, 1.2 million views on YouTube in 1979. Like nobody, it was more of a, it's more like you're a little kind of freak show or something. Like, oh, dig this kid, man. He's 16, 17 years old and he's tearing up a bass at a, you know, at a dance or a disco or something playing with all older dudes. So it was a little bit of a novelty, but it was also illegal. So I had to like get my, you know, little Italian boy mustache going as fast as I could. And yeah, I was six feet tall when I was a teenager. So I could pass it on with some bell bottoms and some platform shoes, man. I was like, I just looked like the rest of the dudes. So I, you know, I got to do it. And we got paid really good. I tell you what, man, the, the pay scale for musicians hasn't changed since the 70s. <laughs> I paid the same amount then as I would now to go do a, an equivalent gig. It's funny. It's the only industry where the pay has not increased. Um, yeah. So, you know, being a teenager, suddenly getting 100 bucks or 200, 250 bucks in your pocket for a weekend. In 1979, $250 in the hands of a 16-year-old? Watch out, man. <laughs> Where did a lot of that knew, money go? I knew education would have no place in my life after that. <laughs> so yeah, no, there was no such thing as a as a, pro, a prodigy in my in my community. It was just you know you were gainfully employed playing music, and that's I guess that's why my parents tolerated it because you know it kept me. It also well, it kept me out of trouble. It was that's where all the trouble went to get entertained. So <laughs> I wouldn't tell my parents that, but it did. It kept me out of trouble. It kept me, 
straight and narrow for a long time because I needed to be able to play at the level of dudes who were in their late 20s and 30s or older even, you know, guys who'd spent their whole lives perfecting their music. So I couldn't show up and be goofing off like a kid jacking around. I had to be on their level. So I, I really worked hard at it. It gave me something to to focus on, which meant my schooling went out the window and, you know, I was getting notes home from, from a guidance counselor saying, well, he must be on drugs or maybe even selling drugs. And so my parents were treating me like I was out there selling drugs or something. Like, no, I'm not selling drugs. I'm trying to get a gig, man. I can't I got no time for that. So yeah, you wouldn't congratulated for it at the time. Right. Who knew? You, you didn't know. Well, well yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know, idea. man. Oh, really? I didn't know it was going to, no, I didn't know what it would lead to. It's not like I was dreaming of, it's funny. I never dreamed of like, I'm going to be a star darling. I never thought about that. I I wanted to get really good at what I was doing. I just wanted to be a really good musician. I wanted to play the best of my ability for the people right in front of me. I wasn't thinking about any lofty ideas like that. My ideals were more just based on what I was doing for the people right there, you know, to get really good at music and yeah, obviously be talked about for, for being good at it, not for being famous. I mean, people magazine, you know, Right. right. And there's this great story. I believe it was Willie Nelson. You had to learn how to play a Willie Nelson tune. You obviously have a, a really good ear and the ability to learn quickly. I think a jukebox was Yeah, involved. man. My first gig as a guitar player, because I was a bass player. Right. I was the bass player. I was the cat you hired, man. If you could get me, when I was about 19 years old, man, 20 years old, around Windsor and Detroit, man, if you could get a hold of me, that I was the dude you hired. So I got bass gigs, buku gigs all the time, always, always, always working. And I had a buddy who was a great guitar player, but he was getting interested in playing the drums because his dad had been a drummer, Kevin Peterson, dude's name. And he was practicing the drums all the time. He was a great musician. Everyone hired him as a guitar player, but he had a gig in a country band family tradition i think what's the name of the band <laughs> and uh he got this country gig he's like hey man they i'm working with this band they need a guitar player you he knew i was interested in guitar and i talked to him about guitar all the time and i borrowed a guitar and a big old gretsch guitar and i was kind of into rockabilly and stuff and playing the guitar and he's like me come do this country gig oh it's easy it's country it'd still be easy it wasn't. <laughs> I got there. It's like, I didn't know the genre that well. So I bought some Hank Williams records. I listened to them every day. And I already knew from Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran. I was like, oh, well, I can see where that comes from country music and blues and stuff. If I play some bluesy solos, man, the first time I played a blues solo on that gig, they were like, what's wrong with you, boy? <laughs> we don't, no, no, we don't, we don't play that kind of music. Like, oh, okay then. You know, any, Black Sabbath licks that I learned, they ain't going to help me. John Lee Hooker's not going to help me. <laughs> what do I do? So after the first set, I was like, man, what do I do? Uh, and there was a Willie Nelson song in the jukebox. They were going to play Georgia in the next set. And Georgia's not a three-chord song, man. That's got a million chords in it. I didn't know Georgia. I like, Shoot, I don't know. How am I going to do this? I went to the jukebox. <laughs> and I saw Willie Nelson. Georgia I put a chord in the jukebox and I just put I just put my chin on the jukebox and listen 
and learn the song off the jukebox on the break. And when Willie went to play the solo, he played the melody note for note in the solo. That's all he did was play the melody. And I thought, that's a good idea. So for the rest of the gig, every time they threw to me in a guitar solo, I played the melody of the song. I'd already just been playing it for two verses. Mm -hmm. So I knew it. Even songs I didn't know. I like do 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 do. I got this, you know. Right. And the band would turn around looking at me like, yeah, man. Yeah, man. You got you got it. Like, hey, thanks, Willie. Yeah. I learned that. And that stuck with me ever since, man, really. When it comes to playing a guitar solo or any kind of solo, really your first your first thought should be on the melody, the words. You either going to play the melody or something based on the melody or a response to the melody because a conversation can go that way. You can the singer can make the statement and you can respond to that statement. So you don't have to play the note note for note melody. But that really just changed my mentality about how to construct a guitar solo. And it cost me 25 cents. That's it. And really interesting to hear you talking thus far. You're naturally like a teacher. And I love this feature that you've been doing. Your content during the pandemic, by the way, has been absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. I applaud you and I thank you because it's really providing a service and some much needed entertainment for some grim times for people, right? As a word, well, making this transition. Providing a little levity, you know, I, I see a lot of artists. I mean, I don't fault anybody, by the way, for charging people for their online content. We're all just trying to get by somehow. Every, you know, most musicians I know have not made any money in over a year. So it's, I, I'm not faulting anybody. But me, I kind of look at it like, you know, I get paid very well to do what I do when I get to do it. So while I'm sitting at home not making money at the same time, I'm like, well, man, there's got to be people way worse off than me sitting at home. I got a studio here. I got all these instruments. I can play all them instruments. I can't get a band together. But, you know, I, I play drums on sessions all the time. I play on people's records. People don't know that, but I play the bass. I'm a bass player my whole life. So I just started, you know, what you can do with an iPhone now is crazy. So I just took my iPhone out <laughs> to the other studio and, you know, filmed myself playing the drums and recorded it in Pro Tools, came in, played some bass, filmed it on my iPhone, did the guitar and singing, filmed it with my iPhone. I thought, well, now what do I do with all that? So I got a program on the internet and downloaded it and went, oh, wow, Premiere Pro, what do you, oh, cool. You know, I mean, it's. Right. It's kind of like music software. It's not much different. You're manipulating digital waveforms of some kind, you know. So I just applied what I know about Pro Tools to to video editing. Right. And now I'm kind of in demand as a video editor, producer. Isn't that crazy? I found the same thing with doing the podcasts. Just doing radio and doing a little bit of production here and there. Like, I mean, I can spot an um, <laughs> you know, in a sound wave kind of thing. <laughs> So it definitely helps me out in regards to being able to do some editing and navigating my way around this podcasting stuff. But it's really great because you're teaching yourself all this stuff. Yeah. And one of the things I really like would be your In the Sound Shack series. And one of my favorites, I believe it was number 13. I'm not sure. Uh, but it was you were talking about all hell in a basement and teaching oh, people uh -huh. how to play. 
And this is what you've kind of been doing. You're like, here's how you could play the song. And then you had a campfire version that they could also play. I just think that's fascinating. So what was the brainchild of that? Man, you know what? It's just filling in the uncomfortable silence that the lack of any kind of live music is bringing from people's lives. It was like, look, it, it, it's also an honor that people care and ask those questions. We start seeing everything coming in the line like, oh, man, it's, it's our most covered song. Right. There's more cover versions of All Hell for Basement. And you hear like super traditional Newfoundland musicians, East Coast Canadian musicians covering it. People from all over the place covering that song. I just, that, that's the greatest compliment you could ever get. So the fact that people care enough to, to learn it and want to learn it. And I was like, oh, well, I can watch people playing it online and think, wow, they're making it really hard for themselves. Look, I'll show you an easy way to play it. <laughs> so I just, you know, why not share that with people? It's, you know, it's not what I do is shouldn't be exclusive. You know, I just like sharing that stuff with people and give them something to entertain them because yeah, for me too, like for everybody, my iPhone's been my constant companion over the pandemic. You know, everybody in my house is on their phone looking at cool stuff. I tend to watch, you know, Frank Zappa videos and Sonny Rollins videos and look up vintage guitar prices in Japan, you know, just <laughs> stuff like that. If you know what I'm looking at food, cooking tutorials, food shows. I mean, I've watched all of them. Uh, foreign language crime shows. I'm trying to learn Italian, you know. <laughs> That's great. So I was like, ah, you know what? I want to be a part of that culture. Like just give people something to look at, which is why, you know, that whole Sound Shack series, we did 24 episodes uh, of me sitting in this studio, just telling stories about songs, how we record them, stories about the guitars, how we acquired them, their, you know, the journey those guitars have been on. And then that morphed into a blues series where I did a couple, just, I felt like playing some blues. I had no one to play it with. So I did a Fats Domino song by myself in the studio made it filmed it put it out there wow we got a ton of views so i did another one the following week then i started getting my friends to send me videos of them playing with me so i got right the first guest i asked i asked joe satriani i'm like satch what are you what you doing man he goes oh man i'm just i'm at home i'm just dying to play my guitar i was like well why don't you die to play your guitar in front of your iphone and send me a send me some guitar playing right. man by supper time, he, <laughs> he did yeah. it. He actually did it. I couldn't believe it. So I got this iPhone video of, of Satch playing a Junior Wells song. And so, you know, I made a video out of that, put that up. And that just, you know, it gave me something to really focus on week to week. Now I got a dozen blues videos. And I never, I didn't really think I would ever make a blues record. But now, man, I got a whole video catalog of right. blues recordings with bunch of different you know guests and my friends and they sound so, awesome uh, yeah man well, i'm gonna keep yeah. on keep on doing that we uh we did a 25th anniversary release of hemivision came out mm -hmm. in 96 mm -hmm. so we did a vinyl reissue of that with a bunch of bonus tracks and cool artwork and colored vinyl and love love vinyl records mm -hmm. so to celebrate the release of hemivision 25 you know most bands would go on a tour and play the record right start to finish for the fans that's a really fun 
way to put on a concert. Yes. So what was I going to do? What I ended up doing was same thing. I sat down at the drums and <laughs> I re-recorded all the songs. I made a drum and bass track for every song on Hemivision. And then I went to do guitar and singing live. So when we're filming it, there's no hand syncing. There's not, not, not making rock and roll videos. You know mm -hmm. I mean? It's like you're actually filming yourself playing. So I same thing, man. I just called up my friends like Rich Robinson of the Crows and Warren Haynes, the government mule and Jason McCoy, the road hammers and Colin James. I called up all my homies and was like, Hey, right. do you guys feel like playing a Hemivision song with me? Everybody said yes. And they wanted to sing it. Everybody's on there singing and playing them with me, man. It, yeah. So I got to have this anniversary concert from home. <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. It, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, but it was, a, it was still a nice way to celebrate yeah, well, you do a great job with the content. I enjoy listening to it. Tuesday Blues Day really caught my attention, obviously, uh, you know, from working at Dog FM. So I was familiar with a lot of the artists that you were recording with. And just the sound quality is great. It's something you can crank up on YouTube. Uh, it's just, uh, well, obviously, you're a producer, so that makes sense. <laughs> just, yeah. You know. Well, I'm lucky. I built just before the lockdown. You know, my studio had been up and running for about a year and a half. So I really had everything dialed and I was really ready to attack a lot of production. We did the the most recent Big Sugar record, Eternity Now, was done in this in this facility. So uh, it was all up and running. Once the lockdown happened, I was like, well, right. it's all plugged in. It's all the gears warm and ready to go, man. So I I have never been busier in the studio. That's awesome. Gordy, actually, I, I want to touch on this as well. The most amazing thing that I think you've done in regards to morale, uh, in regards to making it fun and inclusive and giving people something to do, uh, what you did with your fans with I, If I Had My Way. Oh. And having that yeah. massive <sighs> collaboration. That was just like, every time I see that, it's a, it's a pick-me-up. And I, I can only imagine... Uh, you know, like the viral effect of something like that, of like, I was in this video with Gordy Johnson, sharing it with their friends and their friends. And it's just, what a vibe. The energy was just incredible for that. Our social media person was like, hey, you know, you should get one of those things like where fans send in. Like if I had my way, people just shouted at the concert, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone always sings in that part. Why don't you just get fans to send in videos? That's a great idea, Susan. Sure, let's do that. So she put the call out there. Man, we got like 2,500. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, who's going to watch all these videos? How am I going to? Oh, what have I done? Oh, no. So I put them all in there. I started putting them all into the, for the live stream of that. But, you know, everyone's got a different phone. Right. Everyone's, it's all, they're all different formats. Some of them you can't tell. It's a Huawei phone. It's a, you know, it's a, it's not a, a Mac. It's a, someone sent it on a PC. Someone did it on their laptop. All these different formats tried to put them all into the program. Yeah. <laughs> it I mean, it crashed <laughs> and it crashed hard and trying to recover from it. Then there was this troubleshooting and, you know, we're supposed to go live. We ended up being a day late. Right. <laughs> it on because I was like, but I'm trying to put my fans in the video. Oh, talk about I stayed up all night. I mean, 
all night from the broadcast time on the Thursday to the broadcast on Friday. I was still sitting at the computer going, come on, work this time. Come on, work this time. Okay. I got a hundred fans in. that's going to have to do. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but I got the real, I got some really good ones and unfortunately I couldn't put them all, but man, it was so much fun watching them and seeing people like from, from kids to just, all, all over the place, groups of people, you know, anywhere you went, you know, the seeing the fans sing your song back to you. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, that's a question that I ask a lot of artists, what it was like that first time, you know, where they're singing a song that, you know, maybe they've been working on for years or a song that they created in a basement or in a garage. And then to be at a show to where they can kind of hold out a microphone and hear people sing that like what would be that feeling in words if if you could do it if you can remember the first time i can't remember the first time to be honest but it is uh the feeling never wears off i don't know for me it never gets old maybe aretha franklin holding up a microphone and having the whole audience go r-e-s-p-e-c-t i mean maybe she got tired of singing it so she's put the mic out i don't know but for me you know, to this day, if I had my way is one of those moments, all hell for a basement is one of those moments in the show where it doesn't matter where we are, man, if I just stop the band and hear the auditorium sing it back to you, that never gets old. That I, oh, I get a little burning sensation up the back of my neck. You know, you get that little sweat going, that adrenaline, like, oh, oh, you guys, you shouldn't have, you know, to <laughs> get bashful a little bit, you know, it's no, I'll never, I'll never be jaded enough to, to not think that's the greatest thing. Ever. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, here's something else I want to talk about. The many looks of Gordy Johnson. <laughs> you have a lot of different looks, brother. Like, yeah, that's, that's one. So my friend, I have a friend in Windsor, Ontario, who's a great archivist by the name of Scott Hughes. And he's been archiving photographs and news clippings, old band uh, promo packs and stuff from, I mean, he'll go back as far as you can go with the 40s, 50s, through all through the 60s and 70s, all through Windsor and Detroit. He's got this great, uh, the Motor City Oral History Music Project. Fantastic. So he's forever sending me photos of me back in the day. So about 1985, and this is 1985, believe me, it was cool, but it wasn't that cool to have your hair shaved mohawk, you know? Okay. And I shaved my head and my hair was like really high and it was really clean on the sides. Of course, I was also 135 pounds. Like I looked like a hangman walking down the street. Uh, but it wasn't that cool. Like I got thrown out of a shopping mall by security <laughs> right. just for being there. There's right. like, no, no, we don't want you people in here. Like, what? Right. I didn't. I wasn't shoplifting mm. yet. You know, like he's throwing me out. Mm-hmm. Got pulled out, pulled over by the cops, thrown in a cop car. I'm like, for what? What was I doing? Right. That is like you look. You don't look right. <laughs> like I don't look right. Right. Uh, I don't feel right. Now, now back back in the day, like when you were really catching steam with Hemivision and whatnot, I remember a cl- very clean shaven you, mm. baby mm. face. Oh my god, mm. it's just a baby face. <laughs> it was great. I loved the interview too. And you know, there was a, there was definitely a swagger. There was there was a serious swagger going on. <laughs> 
Uh, you had all the hair slicked back. You were in mm-hmm. all leather and talking about your love for shoes. Do you still oh, have that yeah. love for shoes? Oh, man, I, I love clothes in general. I mean, and every kind of look, too. I mean, believe me, I can get I can get the ranch hand thing going like nobody's business. I got all the gear for that. I wear my Wranglers. I got my work boots. You know, I can do all that. I've lived on a farm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love to you have so many opportunities to present yourself in this world now, you know, the way you want to look, which same thing, like seeing pictures back of myself in, in the eighties, I was like, Hey man, I can still pull that off. There's a lot of looks I can't still pull off from back then. You know, there's, I'm a dad, you know what I mean? Like I'm born in the sixties, man. I can't, there's a lot of stuff I can't pull off anymore. This, I tell you what, nothing says socially isolating. (laughs) <laughs> yes because i walk through the grocery store in red deer alberta or dripping springs texas with a bandana over my face and this going on you know, you know people get 12 feet back pretty easy yeah no problem <laughs> you double that distance fast yeah no they people get get back it's that's all right all right now i also know you like cars and in this interview that i was watching like way back in the day cbc uh you were talking about your car that actually appears on your album covers. And I'm curious, do you still have that ride? You know what? I just sold it. No. Why? I did, but because I'll tell you why. And it wasn't for sale. And I wasn't going to sell it. But I have a friend who's got a motorcycle dealership out in British Columbia. He's a really chill dude. He loves music. He's collects vintage guitars we have a lot of things in common we had a lot of friends in common i started getting to know the guy a little bit and he just loved that car he had it since he had pictures of it since he was a teenager up on his wall he just he loved the hemivision car and he just called me up out of the blue one day was like come on man when are you going to sell me that car i was like well how many zeros you got on that check okay here you go here's the keys baby (laughs) you know i sold it to a guy because now i know where it is i know he's babying it he's got a auto shop you know right there he's got people work for him working on it all the time i I know he's gonna stomp on it and steer it and love it he's not just gonna take it to car shows on a trailer he's gonna love that car and drive it and i'm into my studio i'm into my guitars and songwriting and producing and that's really what i put all my time into that or cooking. Right. And so my car was just sitting there getting rusty in the weather. And I was kind of breaking my heart. I'm like, I love this car, man. I don't, I don't have the time or money or inclination to, to twiddle with it and take care of it all day, every day. And you know, it deserves better than this, than to just sit here and rot. It's a, you know, it's a, a car is its own little ecosystem. The fluid's got to flow. The gasket's got to stay warm. Everything's, if it's in motion, it stays in motion. If it stops getting it going again, sometimes you never get them going again. So I started selling off a bunch of my, my old cars and I'm, you know, I'll probably buy some new old cars at some point. (laughs) You know, a car is a beautiful piece of design and Uh being behind the wheel, you know, looking, already been looking at 
Maseratis online, but I don't know if I'm in the, I don't know if I'm in the market to buy a Maserati just yet. Let's get back to doing gigs again. Right. What What's a tune that you would love to listen to on an open road? On an open road. Hmm. Now that's a funny thing. I I like listening to music in the car, but like if you're in a really cushy car, you know, like, or if I'm in my truck or something, you know, I'm driving my old Chevy around and it's got a good sound system. So I plug in my phone and listen to, I mean, we listen to all kinds of stuff from reggae. I love hearing me some black crows when I'm, you know, if I'm driving, that's, if it's a long drive and I need a little perk me up, put on my black crows, greatest hits, man. And just, <laughs> that's that <laughs> something about Chris's voice gets, gets you going, you know? But when I'm driving, driving like a car like that, like my, my Mopars or, you know, I've got a Mercedes Roadster and stuff like that. To me, music is the sound of the wind and the engine. You know, when you step on the gas, the Maserati, if, if that's not music, you should not be driving a Maserati. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody went to a lot of trouble to, to write that song. You should listen to it. Right. That's, that's to me, that's the music when you're driving. Well, that's an interesting answer. Now, <laughs> I think this leads really well into your current works uh, in Eternity Now. Great album and love the live stream. It was fantastic. People can find that on YouTube right now. And I'm wondering, your mindset when it came to the car and letting it go and giving it to someone else that would also be able to appreciate it, I know that a lot of this album kind of had to do with releasing some past, Mm -hmm. right? And being able to accept, move forward, be happy with the unknown and, you know, what is coming and what is now. Uh, If you wouldn't mind sharing some of the process that went into the making of this latest album, because I know there's uh, a lot of depth to it that maybe some people aren't aware of. Well, look, this is not a unique experience. Life throws a lot of disappointment your way. Mm -hmm. People disappoint you. You disappoint other people. Things don't go according to plan. And this is all before the pandemic, man, like this, (laughs) believe me, Life threw a lot of curveballs at me. I had to make a lot of changes in my life, cut a lot of people out of my life. The people that were dear to me, some people that were dear to me, let me down, double-crossed me, stabbed me in the back. Uh, my One of my greatest friends and musical collaborators died of cancer. Uh, you know, there was we had cancer in our own family, loved ones suffering and all this stuff going on at the same time. And here I made this record and it was the, we knew it was going to be the last record with Gary, but then there was a bunch of publishing debacle that went on over the songwriting. And there was just all this negativity around it. And I thought, you know, Gary would never want that. I sure don't want that. And I don't love music enough to feel like I'm painted in the corner and I just, I have to release it because I said I was gonna, I said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to release this record. Nothing about it to me is relevant anymore. And after Gary passed, you know, my wife and I sat, sat down just kind of shaking our heads going, well, is why have big sugar without Gary? What would you, 
Why would you even want to? What would you do? If you were going to do it, what would you do? You know, we just had that hypothetical question. So, yeah, man, when you stopped and look at it, take a look in the mirror at your own self and go, well, okay. What am I going to do with the situation that's been handed to me? Am I going to just roll over and play dead or, or what do you do? So we decided to move forward. It's like, well, if we're going to move forward, let's move forward in positivity. Let's, let's sing about that. Let's write this stuff into a, into a record, man. It only took us a couple of days and we rewrote an entire record. We had a lot on our minds, you know, it was pretty easy once you identified the source of inspiration to go, if it's only about this topic, let's go there. If you're willing to go there and we're not crying on people's shoulders in the record either, but it really, every song in the record has that point of view of, okay, well, we're moving forward. You can come along, but you don't have to, but this is a way, this is a way out of we're singing about, you know, just mortality, drug addiction, um, just loving your woman, dealing with friends that let you down, like all these things, look into an uncertain future. Are you, are you ready to blast off like with rockets on <laughs> full blazing, like going into the unknown or are you tiptoeing forward? Like you're carrying so much weight from your past that it slows you down. You know, this was like, no, no, I'm leaving it on the launch pad. We're gone. And so that was very cathartic to be able to do that, man. It didn't take us long to make the record and, just surrounded ourselves with good people that love the music and that, you know, that we loved hanging out with and made the record from scratch and then released it in March of 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So take your own medicine. How about that great unknown again? What was that about an uncertain future? What was that? (laughs) So funny how life works. Right. Now we do. Would you consider that to be a blessing somewhat now? Would you change it? Would you change it if you could, I guess would be the better question. Would I change what? The fact that millions of people died from a horribly infectious disease? No, no. I don't feel, I tell you what, man, I can never lose sight of the fact that there are people suffering worse than I am. I'm bummed that we didn't get to tour the record i'm bummed that that all shut down i miss my guitars and my crew and my people and my band and i miss all that but you know i I just i can't i can't feel downtrodden by that because i just i know there are people hurting so much worse that don't they don't even have that to go back to you know like i get to go back to a really charmed life Right. We worked hard to get there, but still, you you, you have to appreciate that it's a unique sure. experience and a unique job to have on this planet, you know. So I just, I'm just thankful every day, you know what I mean? Like jog-eyed and just humble yourself and everything else. You don't, you don't take those words lightly in our right. world. You know, you look at that and go, no matter what we have going on, there's people worse off than us. Right. How can you help your neighbor just get a leg up a little bit? If it's taking groceries to seniors in our neighborhood, volunteering at an animal shelter, like you can't imagine how it's impacting animal shelters, like dogs and pets that are getting surrendered like crazy every day. And there's no, I mean, mm-hmm. can't get enough staff to work at these places. So 
any little way we can help in our own community. That to me, I have trouble thinking about, I wish I was on tour because right. it doesn't cross my mind. Like if, if it crosses my mind, I'm immediately tapped yes. on the shoulder by life saying, Hey man, did you hear so-and-so is sick? Oh my God, they don't have enough money for right. healthcare. There are people who need you know help with this. Can you help us raise money for that? Can you do a, a live stream to help us raise money for, you know, health insurance for musicians in Texas. Like, yes, mm-hmm. yes, I always can do that. The answer is always yes. You always try to help. And when you're so busy helping other people, it's easy to forget that you have problems. Right. Turns out, yeah. Oh, it turns out, I, turns out I didn't have any. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. When giving gratitude, right? If you're ever looking to yeah. get yourself out of a hole, right? Maybe you've dug yourself a hole. I'm sorry. I had to. And then you saw what you did there. (laughs) Pull other people out of it, right? Then you stop thinking about, you know, what's going on uh, in your life. I use the analogy of 10 people walking up to a table with a problem, you being one of those 10, right? And having everyone put their problems in the middle of the table. And, you know, most times than not, you'd be more than happy to take your problem back and put it in your pocket and walk away when you see what other people are dealing with. So I think that's a fantastic perspective. Me, I'd be like these nine other dudes. Hey, can you help me pick up this table? <laughs> let's, just a, let's just get that out of here. That's great. I've evolved that now. Thank you. All you right. I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna go cook us something in the kitchen. Y'all set the table. Never mind your problems. <laughs> just because somebody set the table, you start washing some dishes. <laughs> Speaking of tables, dishes, and you've also mentioned food, what's your favorite dish to cook? Have you learned any new, any new dishes that you enjoy serving to the fam? Oh, man. During the lockdown, I started making my own focaccia. I cook Italian food. My dad has an Italian restaurant. I've been making and eating Italian food my whole life. So we, uh, you know, we we make the sauce every week. We don't make a sauce every week. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's like, Pop, what day are you going to make the sauce? So that that's the kind of household we have. And I do all the cooking, if not most of it. Uh, and so... It's been a long time since I ate a good piece of focaccia. I was like, where am I even going to get one if I wanted a piece of it? So my daughter and I started blooming yeast and making our own <laughs> focaccia. And now it's kind of like, it's an event. We were doing it, you know, once a week for a while, making this giant tray of focaccia. So that's, that's after I hang up with you. I got to go bloom some yeast because that's what you're going to do. Make a focaccia. All right. Well, I'm going to go let you do that in just a second. I want (laughs) to talk to you about one more big deal 500 pounds, uh, something for big sugar fans to look forward to. Uh, That's going to be releasing on vinyl as well because vinyl is badass. And that's going to be in mid July. Yeah. Linus Entertainment, um, you know, the Hemi Vision was so successful as a vinyl package and Linus got to us, they control some of our older catalog. Like, Hey man, we can, can we do that too? Like, yes, you can. We got great album design, you know, went back in the vaults and found the original photographs and stuff to, to recreate the artwork with the original elements, but you know, with a new design, uh, the technology that, that allows you to recreate this stuff from scratch. Cause we, we did, those things are so old now. And in those days, like it, it lived in a file cabinet somewhere, the original artwork. So we didn't even have it to make 
uh, to recreate the artwork. We couldn't find the original stuff anymore. Those labels have changed hands so many times. So it, it was a real challenge even to remaster it, like trying to find the original tapes and recordings and stuff. A nightmare. Man, people just really, really went to town, buckled down and found source material, recreated the artwork. The, the vinyl remastering sounds amazing. I, they sent me, you know, lacquers to listen to on my turntable amazing better than the cd it sounds way better than the original you know uh so that's really exciting you know colored vinyl and it's such a great record and it was a real trip to go back and you know listen to to baby me singing (laughs) singing the blues riding like hell you know (laughs) well that's amazing and i want to thank you for your time it's greatly appreciated and I think it's so fantastic um, that you're doing what you do. And number one, just providing a service and doing that for free when you could easily be charging. No one would, no one would shame you for doing so. Uh, number two, the fact that the content is so positive. Uh, you obviously have a very positive mindset. And I think that's a real beacon of hope for people that are out there. And I think that you know, the byproduct of that on top of just helping people is that I think just naturally it will grow your fan base because people are looking for individuals like yourself to gravitate towards. Uh, So just on behalf of my viewership and, you know, myself, I really do want to give you a a heartfelt thanks uh, for being that person, for being that bright light and giving people something to look forward to each and every day. Hey man, Uh, I'm glad you noticed. Dreadlocks don't make you a Rasta man. Smoke ganja doesn't make you a Rasta man. Positivity make you a Rasta man. See, you yeah. to take care of take care of people, and 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 it takes care of yourself. You get you get what you need, and you help everybody else. That's that's our that's our viewpoint, and that's our philosophy around here. Right. Well, thanks once again, and thank you for listening to yet another Launchpad podcast with myself, J Man, saying as always, you take care. Be well and love simply because you can. Right on, J-Man. All right, brother. That was badass. That was just 100% awesome. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Well, man, dude, we'll have have to do it again sometime soon. Uh, Maybe we'll catch up a little bit later on in the summer. We can talk about 500 pounds. Sure. Talk about upcoming shows. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All the cool places you're going to be touring. Let's talk about that. All All right, right, man. Take care. Enjoy the food. Right on. All right, peace. Cheers.